Amen. Thank you for that choir. We missed you over the summer. When I was in seminary, I took a class on evangelism, and one of the assigned texts for that class was Joe Aldrich's Lifestyle Evangelism. I'm not sure if any of you have read it. It was printed, I think, first in the 70s, but has become sort of a seminal text on how to share your life with those around you. Aldrich began his opening chapter in that book with the following story. So this comes from his book. There is a legend which recounts the return of Jesus to glory after his time on earth. Even in heaven he bore the marks of his earthly pilgrimage with its cruel cross and shameful death. The angel Gabriel approached him and said, Master, you must have suffered terribly for men down there. I did, he said. And continued Gabriel, do they know all about how you love them and what you did for them? Oh no, said Jesus, not yet. Right now only a handful of people in Palestine know. Gabriel was perplexed. Then what have you done to let everyone know about your love for them? Jesus said, I've asked Peter, James, and John, and a few more friends to tell other people about me. Those who are told will in turn tell still other people, and my story will be spread to the farthest reaches of the globe. Ultimately, all of mankind will have heard about my life and what I've done. Gabriel frowned and looked rather skeptical. He knew well what poor stuff people were made of. Yes, he said, but what if Peter and James and John grow weary? What if the people who come after them forget? Haven't you made any other plans? Jesus answered, I have no other plans. I'm counting on them. Twenty centuries later, Aldrich writes, he still has no other plan. He's counting on you and on me. Now, for a long time, I believed what Aldrich had said. I preached it and I taught it for well over a decade. But it is rubbish. Absolute, unbiblical rubbish. God does not need us. Nor has he left his entire plan of salvation in our hands. Now, does God use those who are willing to be used? Yes. If he so chooses, he will. But not because he needs us. Nor because he needs our consent in order to act in his world. God's grace of free will and of free participation when he extends these things are part of God's mercy and grace to us. But they're not the only way that God works in the world. It seems books like Aldrich's, and I was motivated by them, they're trying to motivate people who don't want to share the gospel to share the gospel by putting all the pressure of the success of the gospel on their failure to act. And that's very useful, manipulative tool, but it does so at the cost of making a mockery of God. I'm hoping today that 1 Samuel, in the passage that we've read today, will help us to see the truth of what I'm trying to explain. So we're going to begin with the Ark of the Covenant, because it's central to this story. The Ark of the Covenant doesn't appear very frequently uh, in the books of 1 and 2 Samuel, and it's not very prominent in the book but it is central to the passage that we're considering today. So we're going to begin with it. And we're going to ask a question. What was the Ark of the Covenant? We started to talk about this a little bit in our previous message when we considered where it was that Samuel was sleeping when God first spoke to him. When I'm asked the question, well, what is the Ark of the Covenant? I don't know about you, but I find it hard not to think of Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark. I mean, is it hard not to see that? In that movie, a character named Marcus describes the Ark in the following way. And this is an important description because many of us carry this kind of idea. 
Marcus said, the Bible speaks of the ark leveling mountains and laying waste to entire regions. An army which carries the ark before it is invincible. Is that, is that correct? Well, we're going to allow the text of 1 Samuel to instruct us. So before we get to our liturgical reading, we're going to begin a little earlier in the story in 1 Samuel chapter 4. I'm going to read verses 1 through 11. This was the setup to what happened in the Philistine cities. 1 Samuel chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. So the word of Samuel came to all Israel. Now Israel went out to meet the Philistines in battle, and they camped beside Ebenezer, while the Philistines camped in Aphek. Then the Philistines drew up in battle formation to meet Israel. When the battle spread, Israel was defeated by the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men on the battlefield. When the people came into the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let's take the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord from Shiloh, so that he may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. So the people sent men to Shiloh, and from there they carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of Armies, who was enthroned above the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. And as the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord was coming into the camp, all Israel shouted with a great shout, so that the earth resounded. And when the Philistines heard the noise of the shout, they said, What does the noise of this great shout in the camp of the Hebrews mean? Then they understood that the Ark of the Lord had come into the camp. So the Philistines were afraid, for they said, God has come into the camp. And they said, Woe to us, for nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us, who will save us from the hand of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with all kinds of plagues in the wilderness. Take courage and be men, Philistines, or you will become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been slaves to you. So be men and fight. So the Philistines fought, and Israel was defeated, and every man fled to his tent. And the defeat was very great, for 30,000 foot soldiers of Israel fell. Moreover, the ark of God was taken, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. That was a prophecy of the Lord, that they were going to die, so that is fulfilled in these verses. Now, in the early books of the First Testament, God was described as meeting with Moses before the ark of the covenant. Furthermore, the ark itself was housed in the center of the tabernacle in a room called the Most Holy Place, or traditionally the Holy of Holies, a room which, apart from Moses, only the high priest could enter, and he could only enter it one time per year. We're actually coming near to it now on our calendar. It's very soon. It's on Yom Yom Kippur. These sorts of realities seem to have led to the idea that God's presence was perpetually manifested on the cover of the ark between carvings of two cherubim. Cherubim are throne guardians uh, for the throne room of God. They're angelic beings. They're carved there. Understood in this way, then, the ark corresponded with the presence of God. Even more, in the initial conquest of the land of Canaan under the leadership of Joshua, the ark figured prominently in several of their military campaigns. So maybe it's understandable that for the Israelites of Samuel's day, the ark had come to be conflated with God's presence, and therefore with an assurance of victory. However, that's not what the ark... The ark was not an idol. It was not some sort of representation of the presence of God. That's not what it was built for. Fundamentally, the ark was a repository. It was a safety deposit box for the legal agreement that God had made with the people of Israel at Mount Sinai. That's why it is called the Ark of the Covenant, because that's what it held. 
The ark contained the written text of the covenant as well as some other tangible evidences of the events surrounding Israel's exodus out of Egypt and their time of wandering in the wilderness. So in the ark were the two stone tablets of the law. I told you the first two were carved by God. The second two, it depends on which passage in Exodus you read. It can be tough to tell if it's God or Moses that did the second two. But those are there. A scroll of the law written by Moses was kept in it. Aaron's staff, which had budded during a controversy, that was in it. And a jar of manna was in it from the wilderness. So in this way, the Ark of the Covenant was exactly what its name implies. It was a container for the written records of God's words to Israel. If you go to a Jewish synagogue today, there is an Ark in every synagogue. And what is in the Ark? The Torah scrolls. That's what it is. But though the ark may have been the repository for the written words of God to Israel, as well as the seat on which God manifested his presence in the Holy of Holies, apparently its presence did not guarantee victory. Marcus is wrong. An army that carries the ark is not invincible. We just read it. Our liturgist just read the story. That is patently false, though I do like the movie. The ark and therefore the written records of God's words, they're not magical. Now, what do I mean by magic? Magic, by definition, is the attempt to control nature and even reality through a manipulation of accessible and controllable elements of the world. In the past, it was done through words, potions, rituals, something like that. Today, it's done through technology and medical science. But it's all what the ancients would have called magic. I know we think of magic as tricks. And, of course, that is what it is today in a world of science, but not what they would have thought. Despite what the Israelites may have believed, the ark was not a means through which God might be controlled or through which God might be used. Neither the ark of the covenant nor the written records of God's words that it contained were magical, nor were they guarantees of God's presence with a people. Now, it seems to me that a similar misapprehension remains in contemporary Christian communities as well. For some, the written records of God's words, we don't have an ark, we have a Bible. But this is essentially what the ark was to Israel. It was the place where they kept the written records of God's words and acts. So you carry the ark of the covenant with you uh, if you carry a Bible with you. But many think of this very similarly to the way the Israelites thought of it. Uh, if you read any kind of fantasy fiction or anything like that, how do you ward off a vampire? All you have to do is hold up a Bible, right? And he flees from it. It's like magic. It's the same way they thought of the Ark of the Covenant. They would ward off evil, cast out demons, right? And you just have to quote scripture at the evil powers and they'll run from it. I mean, this is essentially what Israel thought. For others, it's just a collection of stories useful to us because there are stories and our civilization was built on it, but nothing particularly powerful about them. So for some, it'll be like the men later in the story at Bet Shemesh that we'll talk about. The ark is just a thing. It doesn't really matter. We can use it however we wish. It's funny that that's, Israel was all confused about what this was and the same confusion seems to exist today. And I bring all of this up here because I believe contemporary Christianity and the Israelites have made similar misjudgments of the written records of God's words to his people. What was it that conquered the Philistines? The container of the written records of God's words to his people. 
For the Israelites, the ark was a container for God. And therefore, God had to go wherever the ark went. For many Christians, the words of the Bible, too, are just raw material which they can use to manufacture truth, to validate behaviors, to empower their lives. This is a power we can use, a power we can wield, or maybe a set of myths that have been useful to our ancestors. But we think of it primarily as something we control. And that's how they thought of the ark. But carrying the written words of God with us is not a guarantee of God's approval, nor is it a guarantee of God's presence, as Israel learned in a devastating way. As we've been discussing throughout this series, God gave his word to his people for them to study, to understand, and to live in light of, not to strap around their neck and carry around to ward off evil. God did not give his word to his people as a power to wield or as a means of coercing or controlling God. The power and potency of the written record of God's words does not originate in the words themselves, but in the God who revealed himself in and through them. In other words, if we're to avoid the failures of Israel in relation to the ark, we must study and struggle to understand what God has meant to say to us. That is what the priests should have been doing with the ark. It's why they were judged, because they failed to understand what was included in it, what God had said. If Hophni and Phinehas had spent their time understanding what God had said, they would have had no need to bring the ark to the battle. They would not have lost in the first place. God would have been with them, irrespective of whether the ark was with them. True followers of Jesus are students of the words God has spoken. They are never to wield control over what God has said, nor are they to use their craftiness to misuse his words as the Israelites misused the ark in battle. In fact, and this returns us to the illustration with which we opened, the power and authority of the written records of God's words to us does not depend on us at all. God's word neither needs us, nor does it rely on us for its potency. And that, this truth is at the heart of the section that Dave read to us this morning, from 1 Samuel 5, verses 1 through 12, as well as in the verses that follow afterward in, ch in chapter 6. So I'm going to just summarize what we find there. After the ark was captured by the Philistines, they took it and they placed it in the temple of their chief god, who was named Dagon. But on the morning after the ark's first night in Dagon's temple, the priests found Dagon's statue laying flat on its face before the ark with its head and its hands cut off and laying on the threshold. Even more, the people in that first city of Ashdod were afflicted with disease and pestilence. So they moved the ark to another city. And each city that housed the ark was harassed in similar ways until after seven months in Philistine territory, the people decided to send the ark back to the Israelites. And they didn't send the ark back empty-handed. Did you notice it? They filled it with booty. They filled it with golden sculptures and other such things to appease the God of Israel and ward off the plagues that had fallen on them. So the Israelites were defeated initially, but the ark, the written record of God's words to Israel, by itself conquered all the cities of the Philistines, looted them, and came back to Israel victorious with booty in hand. Who did that? God. Who did he use? No one. 
There was no one to be used. There was no one righteous. Not one. So God couldn't act, right? Isn't that what Joe Aldridge told us? If there's no one righteous, God can do nothing. I don't think so. If there's no one righteous, God will do it himself. Appreciating now the relationship between the Ark of the Covenant and the written records of God's words to his people. This tale reminds me of a section of the book of Hebrews. In Hebrews chapter 4, verses 12 through 13, we find these words. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, even penetrating as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him to whom we must answer. Israel came to understand that the written records of God's words to his people are categorically different than the words written otherwise by people, however else they've come into being. The word of God is a personal agent of God's will. The prophet Isaiah in chapter 55 verse 11 of his book has recorded God as having said the following, So will be my word which goes out of my mouth. It will not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the purpose for which I sent it. Even more, the gospel according to John has told us that the person of the Son, Jesus himself, is rightly to be associated with the word of God. In John's words, this is John chapter 1 verse 14, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, And we saw his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Again, just like the ark conquered the Philistines by itself, God took on human flesh and saved us by himself. Doesn't sound like a God that needs us, but he does use us, and we'll get to that. Since the word of God is personal, The significance of the written records of God's words is not that they contain God's presence or that they're somehow magical, but they are a means to understand God's intentions, a means to understand God's will, a means to understand God's teachings, a means to understand God's instructions. In other words, they are a means through which we might hear the word of God. When we approach the written records of God's words to read them, and to study them, do we realize that both their power and their importance lies not merely in the words on the page or the translation that we happen to have in our hands, but rather in what God meant to communicate to us through them? This is why the written records of God's words to his people are holy and why they should be treated with respect, not because they contain God's presence, but because they retain God's communication to others and then through them to us. Now, if any of that were to make one think, well, you're making the Bible less holy, that means we can treat them casually. We can do whatever we want with them. Well, the rest of 1 Samuel should warn us otherwise. When the ark was returned to Israel in 1 Samuel chapter 6, verse 13, most of the people made sacrifices and received it with celebration. But some had lost respect for the written records of God's words for some reason. Maybe it was because the ark had been taken and Israel had fallen in battle and Hophni and Phinehas were dead. Some people thought the written records of God's words were powerless to protect them, so they treated them with carelessness. That's what we find in 1 Samuel chapter 6, beginning in verse 19. The text says, Now he, God, fatally struck some of the men of Beth Shemesh, 
because they had looked into the ark of the Lord. He struck 50,070 men. That's more than the Philistines killed, if you're a math person. 50,070 men among the people, and the people mourned because God had struck the people with a great slaughter. And if you lived in Beth Shemesh, what would you do? You'd do what the Philistines did. Get this thing out of our town. And the men of Beth Shemesh said, Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? And to whom will he go up from us? So they sent messengers to the inhabitants of a neighboring town, Kiriat Jerim, saying, The Philistines have brought back the ark of the Lord. Come and take it for yourselves. They don't even tell them how dangerous it is. You just, you take this thing. We don't want the written records of God's words with us. It's too dangerous. The written records of God's words to his people are not to be treated lightly. Now, there are two possible readings of what occurred in 1 Samuel 6, 19. Uh, either the people didn't celebrate when the ark was coming. That's what the Greek translation of the First Testament says. And therefore, they were put to death. The Hebrew text says that the people were put to death because they had looked casually into the ark. They had opened it. The first reading addresses how the word is received, the other how it is to be approached. The heart for me, though, is the same, whatever the, the historical case was. Both are concerned with how the ark was treated. The written record of God's words to his people must be received and approached with care. We should be attentive when reading them, cautious when interpreting them, and absolutely opposed to changing them. These are the records of what God has said. We should not peer into them pridefully or irreverently. God created the world by speaking. The records of what God has said are precious and sacred. Now, of course, it's a derivative holiness. They're only holy because the God who carried along the authors as they wrote and breathed his words into them are holy. We must study the written records of God's words to his people, of course. But to really understand them, to really be transformed by them, we must live in submission to the God who spoke them. The ark was an empty vessel, a useless talisman in the hands of Hophni and Phinehas. Why? Because they were not living in submission to the God who spoke the covenant into being. Similarly, the Bible is an empty vessel for those who are not living in submission to the God who breathed it into being. What does this passage tell us about God? Well, first it tells us that God's promise to be with his people is not absolute. He was not with them when they fought the Philistines. Anyone who read the covenant of Sinai carefully should have already known that truth because it said it already in the law. God had promised to walk with those who are doers of his word, not simply those who carry his word with them or with any who happen to read it. It would change vampire movies if the only person who could ward off a vampire was a Bible was someone who lived by it. That would change the whole narrative, wouldn't it? It didn't matter that the Israelites brought the Ark of the Covenant with them to battle. It didn't matter that they had a Bible with them. Since they were not living in submission to the words God had spoken, simply having those words was meaningless. Similarly, having a Bible in our homes or even one in our sanctuaries is meaningless superstition if we're not living in relationship with and submission to the God of whose words these are records. In mythology, as I've said, you can just have it, and it has power. But in the real world, God has only promised to be with those who submit to his teachings. 
that are contained therein. The Bible is powerful only to those who have submitted to God. To return to our opening illustration, God does not need us to accomplish His will in the world. That's just human arrogance and pride. Just as the written record of God's Word conquered the Philistine cities and looted them without any human involvement at all, so God's Word is powerful and effective, and it always accomplishes that for which God has sent it. God uses willing vessels by His grace when He so chooses. However, if there are none who will obey, God will use some even against their will, as he used Pharaoh in the events surrounding the exodus out of Egypt. Should we obey God's words to us? Yes. Is this because if we don't obey, God's plan will fail? No. How could God's plans fail? If we don't obey, then we, like Hophni and Phinehas, will be judged. And we'll be left outside of God's kingdom. But God will accomplish his will, with or without us. God has invited us to partner with him because God is meek. And he is humble. And he's anxious to share responsibility and power. We see this in the ministry of Jesus in the way he used his disciples. But God has not entrusted the eternal future of every human being on earth to us. God conquered the Philistines alone. And God can bring about his will alone as well. God has asked us to walk with him, not because he needs us, but because we need him. And finally, those who treat the things God has said disrespectfully, those who come to the records of God's words as though they were any other book, or as though they can be deconstructed and reconstructed in any way we see fit, or as a power that can be used to manipulate others or to justify our own rebellions, such people will one day receive the same fate as the men of Beth Shemesh, who looked into the ark casually. When we receive a Bible, we embrace a sacred trust that has been passed down to us by countless generations who committed themselves to preserving a record of God's words to them that we might not forget what God has said and what God has done and what God has promised to do. In many seasons, this book was preserved at the cost of the lives of those who wrote and carried it. Countless thousands have died that we might have it. But even given their sacrifices, it was not because of them the Bible was preserved, though they sacrificed themselves for it. We have it today because God has not allowed his words to be forgotten. Those who do not read it insult the Lord who breathed it. Those who do not study it treat as an unholy thing the God who has communicated with us. And those who do not submit to it revolt against the God who spoke to those who wrote it. May we learn, church, from the examples of Hophni and Phinehas and the men of Beth Shemesh. May we be counted with those who walked with God by devoting themselves to understand what God meant to say and by walking by faith in the light of what God has revealed. Amen.